It's a joy to be with you again. Let's open our time in prayer. Sovereign and holy God, as we have just sung, you alone are worthy of our worship. Lord, we want to thank you for making a provision for our sin through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for being humble and obedient, taking on the form of a servant, not grasping all of your glory, putting on flesh while remaining God, to suffer, uh, die in our place, take the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sin. We thank you that you have not left us without a guide in this world. You have given us your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and truth. And this morning we now ask that your Spirit would do just that in our lives. Lord, we repeat the words of the psalmist. Search us. Know us. Show us if there is a way in us that is wicked, that needs to conform to your holy character. And give us, Father, we pray, the humility to respond in obedience, understanding that obedience is also an act of worship. Lord, show us uh, truth that must be obeyed this morning. Humble our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, and humility. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a storm? How do you feel in that moment? Uh, can you remember that moment in your life when you were in the midst of a storm? Maybe not a physical storm, but you think about a moment in your marriage, in your family, in your job, where you just felt out of control, uh, where the elements, everything that surrounded you just felt like it was overwhelming. Normally in those moments, we feel fear. Uh, we, we want to escape the situation. We want relief. And sometimes we begin to ask questions like, God, where are you right now? Why have you allowed this to happen? When will this end? I remember very clearly a storm that I was in. Uh, as I mentioned, I grew up on Webster Lake. It's a little freshwater lake in West Franklin, a mile by mile and a half. When I was about 12 or 13, my dad bought a 17-foot sunfish sailboat. It was yellow with a multicolored sail. And uh, he taught us, his sons, how to sail that boat. And I'll never forget the first time that I went out by myself. I felt like I was Captain Ahab. You know, I'm out there, I'm on the boat all by myself. The autonomy, the beauty, the serenity, just cruising along. He actually taught us, he made us pull the sail in and flip the boat on purpose. When the, when the situation was calm, so that when it was crazy, we would be able to flip it over. You had to stand on the rudder board. You would drop the sail, stand on the rudder board, which is the removable keel that was in the middle, and with all your weight, you'd pull that boat back over. And then you could, you could right the ship again, pull the sail back up, and keep going. And I just remember how much fun I had sailing that thing. One day, my friend uh, Jackie came over to hang out for the weekend, and I said, hey, let's go sailing. And we looked at the, the, the sky, and was like, wow, it looks kind of dark, doesn't it? Like, yeah, it'll be fine. You know, we were probably 14 or 15. No problem. So we started off on one end of the lake. We went all the way to the other end. And it got darker. And uh, we started to hear thunder. And we saw lightning. 
which on a lake is a very frightening situation, particularly a small lake, and particularly when you've got a mast sticking up from your <laughs> sailboat. And we said, what are we, what have we done? Uh, and at that point, uh, the sail was useless to us. When the rain was coming down so hard, there was no longer wind to power the boat. So we just dropped the sail, and we felt completely vulnerable. We're just in the middle of the lake. So we were... We were terrified. We were uh, that feeling that we're surrounded by elements we cannot control. Uh, hopeless. What are we going to do at this moment? And we just didn't think to pray at that moment. We were just trying to figure out what could we do, you know, trying to paddle. And in the, in the, in the faint distance, I could hear the sound of a motorboat. Getting closer and closer. And as I looked through the, the rain, you know, it's beating down on you. I, I could see my dad on the boat with standing up driving like this looking over the windshield coming after us to rescue us and to find us and he did and he threw us the rope he didn't scold us at that moment he didn't lay into me he didn't say what were you thinking that was the stupidest thing you've ever done uh it, it lines right up there uh he threw us the rope and he pulled us in to safety and I can remember that day very clearly uh, this morning, we may find ourselves feeling powerless, feeling like we're surrounded, feeling like there is no way out. And the text we're going to look at this morning is going to remind us that God is always present with us. His sovereign power can rescue us from the snares of sin, even from the fear that we may experience. God's power is greater than the storm that you find yourself in this morning. And he wants to extend his grace to you and give you an invitation to receive that. I want to invite you this morning to open up your Bible to Mark chapter 5. You have a copy of the scriptures, Mark chapter 5. And as we think of this world that we live in that is sin sick, that needs hope, we see the effects of sin everywhere. Uh, we flee the effects of sin. At times we, we are like the psalmist and we say, God, why do you allow the wicked to prosper? Here we are living righteously or, or, or trying to live righteously. And, and, and we see that we struggle and, and the wicked, it seems like, are, are prospering. And we ask the question, with all the sickness and, and wickedness in the world, uh, things going against the natural order that God's created, is there a solution? Have we gone too far? That's the voice that we are often hearing, right? You know what? God's coming back any day. And it might not be a flood, but it's going to be something. We don't know when that imminent return of Jesus Christ is. The scripture teaches it very clearly. But as we ask this question, is there hope for this world? As believers, we must respond with yes. Yes, there is. There is nobody that is outside of the realm of God's grace and forgiveness and his hope. This morning, we're going to focus our attention on three encounters, and we're going to see a progression in these three encounters. We're going to see a hopeless situation. We're going to see the power of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see radical change. So we're going to see a hopeless situation because of the effects of sin. We're going to see an encounter in the power of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see radical change in each one of them. And another theme that we're going to see, a pattern that we're going to see in each one of the enc these encounters is fear. The more I studied and looked at this text, I was reminded how much fear played in to the lives of each one of these people. 
And we need to look at some of the, the pretext. So we're going to go back before chapter 5, and we're going to look at 35 through 30. And as you look at Mark 4, 35 through 30, it is a very familiar situation. Uh, it's similar to what I went through on the 17-foot the sunfish. The disciples are with Jesus. There's a, there's a crazy storm going on. The scripture says that Christ isn't just sleeping. It says he's sleeping on a cushion. He's enjoying the sleep. I mean, he is at peace. He is just, he, he, isn't that a beautiful picture? The storm is going on. The disciples are desperate. They are absolutely frantic. And Jesus has his head on a cushion. And he's sleeping. I don't know what kind of sleeper you are. Uh, I don't think I could sleep through a storm. In a boat. And this reminds us of the sovereign power that Jesus had. And look at verses 35 through 30. Let's read the 35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. So who led them into this storm? Who led the disciples into this storm? Jesus. Jesus said, get in the boat because I'm going to put you in a very uncomfortable, difficult situation in which you have absolutely no control and in which you are going to fear for your life. You know, as we read the scriptures, we have to recognize patterns and cycles, things that God did then, that he always does, and that he is doing now. Because the things he did with the disciples, he's doing in your life as well. It may not be a boat, and it may not be a storm, but it is a situation that God is going to lead you into in which you say, you know what, I am way out of my league. I cannot do this on my own. I don't have the emotional energy. I don't have the physical energy. I don't have the finances. I, I, I just can't do this anymore. That is exactly, exactly where God wants us. When we get to the end of ourselves and we say, okay, okay, I get it. I get it. I need your help. This is what you're trying to tell me? Okay, I get it. So Jesus chose to put disciples in this situation. We look at verse 38. I love their response. They said, teacher, do you not care that we are dying? <laughs> They're kind of saying, how can you sleep? What is your, don't you love us? Have we said those same words in a different way to God when we find ourselves in a situation? God, are you sleeping? Aren't you seeing what's going on around here? We read it this morning in the, in the psalm. We're crying out. Don't you, aren't, you, aren't you paying attention? He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. The wind died down. It became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have faith? We're going to see that this situation that happened, this storm, was just a laboratory. It was the classroom that Jesus was going to use for his disciples. I love classrooms. My ministry takes place in a large part in classrooms. Uh, as a seminary professor, as we're, we're, we're teaching students, as we're seeing the light bulb come on, it, it, is, it is wonderful. But sometimes in the classroom, there's a lot of confusion there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of doubts, things that are being wrestled with. And this is the classroom. This is the laboratory that God is using to shape and change these men, to prepare them 
for ministry, to prepare them for greater storms, in which he's saying, I'm forming out of you guys men that will no longer be afraid in the storm, or they won't be afraid in the presence of Roman soldiers, or they won't be afraid in the presence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is preparation. So as we think about our own life, think about that. God is using this situation, and maybe the best thing is not to try to get out of it and escape it, but to say, God, how do you want to use this situation to grow me and to glorify yourself? So his message to the disciples is simply this, trust in my sovereign power in the storms of your life. Trust in my sovereign power in the storms of your life. This is my prayer for us today. For us today. We're going to look at the three encounters. Let's look at the first one. The first one is going to remind us that Jesus gives freedom from the chains of sin that bind. Jesus gives freedom from the chains of sin that bind. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. After the storm, they came to the other side of the sea in the country of Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He had been dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him, even with a chain. Think about that power. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, gashing himself with stones. This is a picture of what sin does. It isolates, it causes separation, and it is self-destructive. This man is harming his own body. He is completely isolated. He's completely cut off from everyone. He's screaming night and day. We don't know his story, but what we do know is he was not well. He could not help himself. They couldn't subdue him. This is a language in the scriptures, in the, in, 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 uh, the original language, that is used to refer to wild animals, wild beasts that could not be controlled. Seeing Jesus from a distance in verse 6, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, Jesus asked the man, What is your name? And he said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there's a large herd of swine feeding nearby in the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Can you picture this? 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of bacon. Going over the cliff just bobbing around now like apples in the, in, in the water. These demons could sense the presence of the king of the universe. There were people who heard the message of Jesus Christ that did not believe in Jesus Christ. But we need to remember that these demons were once part of an angelic group that were in heaven before Satan rebelled. They knew exactly who Jesus Christ was. They addressed him as son of the most high God. The word here used for bow down is a word used for worship in other parts of the New Testament. Can you picture that scene? The word legion 
was a group of Roman soldiers that was a minimum of 4,000 soldiers and could number up to 6,000 soldiers. What kind of torment was this person in that had 4,000 to 6,000 demons inside of them? Their immediate submission just underscores who this was. This was, this was God with flesh that was standing before them. The one who controlled the storm now controls the demons. And as Christ impacts his life, there's a noticeable change. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen ran away and reported it, probably because they wanted to know how they're going to get paid for all these 2,000 pigs, right? And the people came back to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion and they became frightened. Once again, we see the theme of fear. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. They began to implore him, that's Jesus, to leave the region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, but he did not let him. Jesus said to him, go home to your people. And report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. This man was well known. Everybody knew who he was. They avoided him. Are there people in Concord that, that you avoid when you're walking down the street? Like, oh boy, I don't even want to get near them. Somehow they're going to rub off on us and... You know, I'm going to get dirty. Uh, if he was in Mexico, he would have had a nickname. We give everybody nicknames in Mexico. I don't even know the real names of some people. Everybody has a nickname. He would have had a nickname. His life was destroyed and controlled by Satan. And here we see this pattern. Hopelessness because of the damage and the effects of sin, the power of Jesus Christ, and radical change. Jesus displayed his power, we see in 5.13. And then in 5.15, there's a total transformation. He's no longer breaking chains. He's seated, he's subdued, and he's in his right mind. Something that I always struggled with as I saw this in verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus is leaving, and this man wants to follow him. Doesn't it strike you as kind of strange? In many cases, Jesus said, follow me. Peter, follow me. You, follow me. And this guy says, I want to follow you. And what does Jesus say? Nope, not going to follow me. He didn't send him to seminary. And believe me, I believe in seminary. Seminaries are good. He didn't send him on an evangelism uh, course. He didn't tell him to do this or to do that. What did he tell him? What instruction did he give this brand new believer in verse 19? Go home. To your people, report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus basically told him, share your story. Do you feel inadequate to be an evangelist? Do you feel like, hey man, you know, that's not my job. That's why we have pastors. That's why we have missionaries. So we have people that do this stuff. That's not my job. Uh, maybe I can set up a meeting with a pastor. We can get together for coffee and he can share. That is not our responsibility to just do that. We have a responsibility to do the work of an evangelist. 
to share, to make disciples, to simply share, as we see in this, in this verse, what God has done for us. And you say, you know what, my story is boring. It's not boring when God saves us from the bondage of sin and sets us free, even at a young age. It's not boring to say, look what God guarded me from my entire life to bring me to this point so that I could walk into a pure marriage. It's not boring to say, look what God has done in my life so that I have integrity in my job and I'm faithful to my spouse and I live this way when I'm at school. That's not boring. Chains of sin that bind are not always visible. These chains were very visible. And this first encounter reminds us that Jesus breaks the chains of sin that bind. What do the chains of sin look like today? It's not a guy running around a cemetery cutting himself with chains on. But it is people that are self-harming, possibly, doing self-destructive behavior, uh, crying out in different ways, trying to fill a void that, that they know that only something can fill, but, 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 they, but they can't figure out what that is. And we have the opportunity to tell them, that it is God. The second encounter is going to show us that Jesus heals the wounds that linger. Jesus doesn't just break the chains of sin that bind. Jesus also heals the wounds of sin that linger. Look at verse 21 through 24. Here we're going to be introduced to Jairus. And then suddenly, this encounter is going to be interrupted by another encounter. Let's look at verse 21. Jesus crossed over again in the boat to the other side. No storm this time. A large crowd gathered around him, so he stayed on the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. The disciples fell at Jesus when they were in the boat. The demon-possessed man fell at Jesus' feet, and here this man falls at Jesus' feet. And suddenly, in verse 25, as Jesus is going to help Jairus, and we hope to heal his daughter, there's an interruption. There's an interruption in ministry. There's an interruption in his life. And I have to ask myself the question, am I sensitive enough to understand when God is trying to interrupt my life, to push me in another direction on a task that he might have for me? Do we notice when God is interrupting our lives for his sovereign purposes? We say, you know what, I'm too busy. Got too much to do. Verse 25 says, A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years had endured much at the hands of many physicians, spent all that she had and was not helped at all, rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him, touched his cloak, for she thought, listen to this faith, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So in the middle of ministry, Jesus stops to do more ministry. If we are too busy to stop and help people when God presents situations, we do not have our priorities in order. I know I am often guilty of this. Sometimes I grow numb to this. In Mexico, where we live on every single street corner, there is a small child selling something or a guy drinking gasoline and blowing it in a flame out of his mouth or someone that is asking for money. And we just get used to seeing it. And now we try to keep 
granola bars in the car. We got a whole box of them in the garage and we just grab some and we fill up our supply and we don't want to give them money because we don't know what habit we could be sustaining, but we say, God loves you, Jesus died for you, here's something, a small reminder of that. We often grow numb to these things. I know I'm often guilty of putting my goals, (laughs) my purposes first. But this poor woman had used up all of her possibilities, all of her money. C.S. Lewis has a great line. He said, pain is God's megaphone for a deaf world. Pain is God's megaphone for a deaf world. God uses pain to wake us up. And he did that in this situation. Remember the pattern we're seeing? Hopelessness, power of Jesus Christ, and radical change. The first person had no moral hope. This woman is without physical hope. And in verse 30, Jesus displays his power. Um, in, sorry, in verse 29, we see that she was healed. Verse 30, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeded from him, had gone forth, he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Once again, fear falling down before Jesus. And he said to her in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. For years, the church got this wrong. They would cut up pieces of cloth or take pieces of a cross that they thought, this pieces of wood that said it was part of the cross of Jesus Christ, and they would sell them. Peter said if all those pieces, uh, I'm sorry, Martin Luther said if all those pieces of uh, wood could be put together, we'd be able to construct another cathedral. She wasn't saved because she touched cloth that was powerful. She was saved because of her faith in Jesus Christ. It's likely that some of us here today have wounds that linger. Things that have been done to us, things that we have done, and we carry these around much like this woman. Year after year after year. Trying to find a way to fix them and to heal them. Affected by them every day and feeling hopeless. Jesus gives an invitation to those that feel that way. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning, be reminded that Jesus can heal your wounds, as he did for this woman. He gives hope. So he doesn't just give freedom from chains of sin that bind. He doesn't just heal the wounds of sin that linger. The third and last thing we're going to see is Jesus also conquered the death That causes separation. The result of sin is death. And Jesus conquered death. Verse 35. While he was still speaking with this woman. They came from the house of the synagogue official saying. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Jesus overhearing what was being spoken said to the synagogue official. Do not be afraid. Again fear. He said, only believe. He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people weeping and wailing. Our text brings us back to Jairus who was temporarily sidelined. 
His job as a synagogue official was a person who safeguarded the scrolls. Uh, he would organize the events that would happen at the synagogue. He would supervise the teachers and the readers. He would attend to uh, the, the different needs. It's kind of like a, a, a deacon role. Jairus was part of a group of, of those men. So think about his position in the synagogue. Is Jesus Christ a person that he would want to associate with? No. He would not want to associate with Jesus. He would not want to be seen with Jesus as a, as a ruler. But he was also the father of a very sick 12-year-old. And that changes things. He was hopeless. He went to Christ. He asked for help because he heard about this rabbi who had power that nobody could explain. So what looked like a distraction by helping this woman resulted in the death of this girl. That's a terrible situation, the death of this young lady, this 12-year-old girl. But we're going to see that God is going to use this storm, this situation, to bring hope and to glorify himself. Can we start to see those situations in our life as a moment where God would cause others to look to us and the way that we deal with the storm, the way that we deal with a hopeless situation, and the way that we find hope in him so that Jesus Christ could be glorified? Is there room in our theology for that? To say, God, I want to be used. But normally we say, but not like that. Right? Peter said, use me. And God said, okay. Can you drink from the cup that I will drink from? And how did he respond? Yes, sure can. And he gave his life. God is teaching us something about the way he operates in this world. He tells us as his children to live by faith. He says the righteous will live by faith. In the midst of a perverse generation, he wants us to shine as lights, to live in a different way. If you are righteous, demonstrate this by trusting me and living rightly is what God tells us. If we have an impossible situation, trust that he is sovereign and he is in control and he will glorify himself through that situation. In verse 38, we see this group of people that were just wailing. The history shows us, as we do some exegesis in the Greco-Roman world, that there were professional wailers that people would hire. They didn't even know the family. But if you had a loved one that passed away, you would hire a professional wailer, and they would come to your house, and they would, ah, ah, and they would just wail. We see this a lot in Mexico. It's a hopeless situation. So can you picture the chaos? The parents are there. They're weeping. The whalers are there. Ah! Jesus comes along, and he's with this group. And, uh, you know, the girl's dead. The guy had demons. At least he's still alive. The woman was sick for 12 years. She still had a pulse. Is there a more hopeless situation than death? Verse 39. Entering in, he said to them, Why make commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And of course, they responded in great faith and said, Amen, Jesus. No, verse 40 says, They began laughing at him. They mocked Jesus, the God-man. 
But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions. He entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. This isn't just a moment that we look back over 2,000 years later and say, what a beautiful image. This was a moment in which our Savior demonstrated individual compassion to a 12-year-old girl. In Aramaic, this word talitha, pronounced talita, is also a synonym for little lamb. Jesus grabbed her hand and he said, little lamb, get up. We think about the kids that we have in these homes, these beautiful lives that have been damaged, that have been hurt, that have been scarred by the effects of sin. And this is the hope of the gospel, (laughs) that Christ breaks chains, he heals wounds, and he brings life where there has been death. Immediately, verse 42, the girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given to her to eat. Friends, look at these three situations, all without hope. Before these, we see that Christ has sovereign power over nature. Remember the storm? He is in sovereign control over nature. The second one shows us that he is in Sovereign control over the spiritual realm and exercises authority over demons. He's also in sovereign control over the physical realm as he healed this woman who had the issue of blood. And here we see that he's also in sovereign control over death itself by raising a dead person. It's not the first time he'd done it. He'd done it with Lazarus as well. But what is he showing us? He's showing us that he is Lord over all. He's showing us there is no situation in your life, in your marriage, in your job that is not under the realm of his control, that cannot be touched, that cannot be healed, that cannot be fixed. He is God over all. There's nowhere in your life where his power does not perfectly and sovereignly extend today. When we feel powerless, we can look back on these situations and remember this is the God who leads us. This is the God who is our Savior. He who has power over the storm, the demons, sickness, and even death can empower us through the seasons of change for his glory. There's something in this chapter we can't miss, and I want to finish with this as we, 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 we finish this section. There were three things that these people all had in common. All these situations that were without hope. We remember that Jesus was a carpenter, right? He was a Jew. But he wasn't just a Jew. He was also a rabbi. Rabbis in the Greco-Roman world and in the time of Jesus Christ, there were rules that applied to them. There were certain things they could do and there were things they could not do. Jesus, as a rabbi, was not allowed to touch any of the people that he interacted with. Every single one of them was ceremonially unclean. The demoniac, the woman with blood, and the dead girl. Any other rabbi that would have come and would have laid a hand on them would have become unclean, and he would have had to purify them. This is such a beautiful image that Jesus Christ is not contaminated by your sin. He doesn't get dirty by your sin. 
Instead, he purifies us. He cleanses us. He purifies all that has been contaminated. This, my friends, is the glory of the gospel. (laughs) That we can't fix ourselves. We can't clean ourselves. We can't do enough to arrive at the measurement and the standard that God requires of us. How do we do that? If we're here this morning believing that our uh, attendance here can get us a little closer or an offering can get us a little closer, or, or, or being a good person in, in the circle of karma is, is going to get us a little closer. We need to repent of that. The scripture says there is only one thing that can clean our sin, that can give us the righteousness that we require, and that is Jesus Christ. Every single one of us has a morally bankrupt account. No one likes to see the red when you open up your, your, your statement, right? Or your spreadsheet. Oh, man, we hate the red. That is what our account looks like morally. It is so far in the hole, it is much worse than the U.S. economy. I mean, it is, we are, we are in debt, a debt that we cannot crawl out of, impossible. But when we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in his payment for our sin, in his resurrection, God deposits into that account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He unites us with his son. He said, all that happened to him now happens to you. You died with him and you rose again to newness of life. You are mine. If you're here this morning and you have not believed this message, I want to urge you, plead with you to place your faith in that message. Obey that message. Repent of any faith we might have in anything that we could do, believing that it could earn favor with God. If you are here this morning and you have already believed in that message, then I want to encourage you to see how God is using the storms of your life to manifest his glory and to be a willing vessel for his work. And instead of saying, God, take me out of this situation. Don't you care? Wake up. Saying, how is God using this situation to grow me, to prepare me for greater things, and also to demonstrate his glory? I want to challenge you to identify somebody that God has placed in your circle of influence who has no hope. Maybe they're like the demoniac and they have no moral hope. They're completely given over to the slavery of sin. Maybe they're like the woman. Uh, they're, they're, they're without hope because they're experiencing some kind of sickness. Maybe they're like uh, the, the, this other person has just been, just been affected by the devastating effects of sin. Who has God placed in your life in which he wants to use you to speak the message of the truth of the gospel and to say, you know what? Jesus Christ can break the chains of sin. You know what? Jesus Christ can heal the wounds of sin. And Jesus Christ also brings life to our dead-in-sin lives if we place our faith in him. May God use you as a church, in your jobs, in your schools, in your communities to do that, and may use us also to do it in Mexico. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing example we have of our Lord Jesus Christ. We remember that so few of his daily encounters of three years of ministry are recorded in the scripture. This is just a glimpse into one day of his three years of ministry. And and Lord, we, we think, what does a day in our life look like? How would you be using us, the people that you surround us with on purpose, the neighborhoods where you have placed us strategically and sovereignly, the jobs 
the cubicles, the groups, the school groups, the sports teams, the places where we go to get our hair cut and, and buy our groceries. Lord, you have placed us in this world with that purpose of making a dent, leaving an impression for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us boldness, Lord, to speak out. You know our limitations, Lord. You know that often we are afraid. Often we, we, we feel shame when we shouldn't. But Lord, we pray that this power of the Holy Spirit that you have given us uh, would, would do as it you said in Acts 1.8. The Spirit, Lord, will give us power to proclaim this message. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to do that. And we would see your church grow as we are faithful, and as you use us, Lord, for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.